0: Let's pray together. Father, we pray for your help now as we look to your word. Lord, we ask that you'd give us wisdom to know how to think about what is here. And Lord, I pray that you would make us strong in your grace and teach us what that grace even is. Help us to recognize that we ourselves are unworthy sinners who deserve only the sword that comes from the mouth of the one who will come on that white horse when the skies are opened. And Lord, cause us to feel our guilt before you so truly that we feel the wonder of your mercy. And Lord, I pray that you would enable us as we submit ourselves to you, enable us to walk with you, to know you, to live for you, to train our children and to honor you in everything that we do. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to thy name give glory because of thy loving kindness, because of thy truth. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Genesis chapter 34. And as you're turning there, I, I want to introduce some, some statements from Proverbs and, and a little bit of story from my own life that, that I hope will help us to think about who Jacob is and how he got to be the kind of man he is, and what kind of father uh, we see him in, in Genesis chapter 34. So uh, before I read these, these couple of statements from Proverbs, uh, just a little story from my own life. Uh, December 7th, 1997, Dallas, Texas, by God's grace, uh, with the help of the, the Lord and the Holy Spirit, I ran the White Rock Marathon. And I had trained hard. I had run all fall uh, and all of the late summer. I had trained with some buddies, and, and they had really helped me and, and gotten me going. And, and, and we did everything that we knew, you know, that a human being needs to do to prepare to run 26.2 miles. But I still, I had, I had done enough long runs to know that with all that training, I still might not make it. I, I could start that race, and I could collapse. And, and in the race... Um, I I ran by people who, they were fit, they had clearly trained, but their bodies had simply given out on them due to the length of the race. And one of the guys that had done this before with me, we would pass one of these people, and he would say to me, yeah, our bodies just aren't made for this distance. (laughs) We're not supposed to be trying to do 26.2 miles. And I'm like, well, why did you get me into this, you know? (laughs) Here we are doing this thing that we're not supposed to do, and, and just as an illustration of the way that you're... I mean, at about the 22-mile mark, you know, they've got these, these uh, refreshment stations along the way, and these people, are, they're trying to give you orange slices and other kind of snacks to sort of replenish your body, to keep you going. And at about the 22-mile mark, I reached over to get an orange slice, and I couldn't get my hand to close on the thing because I had just used up all of my resources. And my... I felt the muscles in my groin, as I turned my body sideways, I felt them clench, and, and I could, you know, this thought went through my mind, I hope I'm able to finish. And I, and I say that because this is, this is sort of like a parable for, for life, and a parable for, for child training. You, you can do everything that you know to do. You can prepare in all the ways that you know to prepare, and then something unexpected could happen. And your body could give out, or your knee could seize up, or somehow in the transfer from parent to child, there's something crucial that just doesn't get handed on. So I want to acknowledge humbly, before I read these passages, that that this kind of thing does happen, even with good parents who are doing their best, okay? But I'm going to be really hard on Jacob as we go through this chapter, Genesis 34. So... Uh, Here's Proverbs 29, verse 15. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. That passage indicates that parents who discipline their children with the rod and reproof communicate wisdom to their children, but those who leave their children to themselves those kinds of parents they bring shame upon themselves because of the way that their children are going to act. And then two verses later, Proverbs 29:17 says, Discipline your son, and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. And there's this implication: if you don't discipline him, don't expect rest. Don't expect delight. You can expect trouble. You can expect frustration, and with those ideas in mind, I would invite you to look back now to Numbers. I'm, I'm sorry, uh, Genesis chapter 34, and in Genesis 34 we will see Jacob's children not giving him rest and bringing shame upon their parents and. You know, we we look at Jacob and we say, how did he get to be this kind of father? The kind of father who has children, who don't give him rest, who brings shame upon him. Well, I think we can work it backward to Isaac. Because Jacob, you'll remember, stole the blessing from Isaac and defrauded his brother Esau. So I think somehow Isaac had failed to discipline Jacob. And then Jacob continues the legacy. Of, of, it seems, from what we see reflected in the story, poor parenting. So, you know, there are some things in the Bible that you want to look at and you want to say, I want to live like this. There are other things in the Bible and you want to look at and you want to say, God help me. God help me to train. God help me to discipline. God help me to pursue my own walk with you so that I don't wind up like this. One more, one more comment contextually about the where Genesis 34 is placed in the book of Genesis before we uh, dive into the details of the chapter. We are almost at the end of the section that deals with, with Jacob. So the section in Genesis that really focuses on Jacob starts in Genesis 26 and goes through Genesis 35, kind of includes Genesis 36. So you'll remember that in Genesis 26, this is where... Isaac uh, tells the sister fib lie about his wife, Rebekah. And we're going to see in this chapter why he thought that was necessary. And then if if you go, so that's the Jacob section. It sort of begins and ends with these threats to the women from the men of the land, the Canaanites. Well, similarly, in in the Abraham section, which is, it really runs, the body of it runs 12 to 22, Genesis 12 to 22, The second half of Genesis 12 is where Abraham tells the sister Phibli about Sarah to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh seizes her and takes her into his harem. And then near the end of that section, Genesis 20, this is where Abraham does it again with reference to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines. Uh, Once again, he tells the sister Phibli, and uh, they're mad at him uh, because they find out that actually this is your wife. This is not your sister. So it's interesting That near the beginning and near the end of the Abraham section, you have this threat to the women from the men of the land, the Canaanites or the the Egyptians or the Philistines. And then with the Jacob section, near the beginning and near the end, you have the same thing. This is, I think, intended by Moses to cause us to think about these episodes in light of one another. And in particular, Genesis 34 is helping us to understand why Abraham and Isaac would tell that lie about their wives. So look with me at, at Genesis chapter thirty-four. And our first our first unit here, I think, is in verses one through six. And you see the, the the statement that Dinah went out in thirty-four one, and then in thirty-four six, Hamor the father of Shechem went out. And I think that 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 phrase sort of brackets this this unit in thirty-four one through six. So thirty-four one. Now Dinah the daughter of Leah. Whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. If you've read this passage, you know what's about to happen. It's not good what's about to happen. And I wanna wanna go back to Jacob's fathering. Either Jacob has not said something like what Boaz says to Ruth over in Ruth chapter 2. It's a beautiful scene. Uh, Boaz knows what the land is like. And Boaz says to Ruth, whom he wants to protect, in Ruth 2.8, he says, listen, my daughter. So Boaz is relating to Ruth as his daughter. He says, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? So Boaz is saying to Ruth, look, this is a dangerous world. This is a dangerous world, and I've created a safe place where the men know that they are not to abuse you, they are not to touch you, they are not to do anything inappropriate to you, and as long as you stay with my men, you'll be safe. So don't go out from where my men are and my young women are. You you need to stay in the safe place. I don't know if Jacob has not done that and not said to Dinah, you need to stay with us. Or if he's tried to do it, and she just willfully goes out. We're, we're, not, we're not told. I think from, from the drift of this narrative and from what we see of Jacob in this chapter, I think it's probably more likely that Jacob is derelict in his duty here. That Jacob should have been a more assertive father. He should have made it clear, Dinah, this is not a safe world. Dinah, the, the Canaanites are not good people. I think So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mark this down to, to Jacob, but there, there is also a sense in which Dinah maybe should have known better, but, but I don't want to, I, I want to just mark this down to Jacob. 34.2, when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, so you remember we were dealing with Pharaoh, the, the king of Egypt in Genesis 12. And then we've got Abimelech, the king of the Philistines in Genesis 20. And then again, Abimelech, the king of the Philistines in Genesis 26. And now here we've got this guy Shechem, the prince of the land. He sees her. He seized her. And, and you may remember that in those earlier narratives, once Abimelech figures out, oh, Isaac, Rebekah's actually your wife, not your sister. He says to Isaac, one of the men could have seized her and lain with her. So Shechem, the prince of the land, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. This, this, I think, from what goes on in this passage, this seems to be the way that the Canaanites conducted themselves. Because as the passage goes on, there is never an indication that Hamor or his son Shechem think they've done anything wrong. Never once do they indicate that they think They need to apologize. Never once do they indicate that they think maybe they need to repent or that they're guilty of any kind of wrong. So it seems to me from from the way this is presented that this was just sort of the way the Canaanites conducted themselves. And and thus, I think we can understand. I'm not justifying. I'm not uh, explaining away. But I think we can understand why Abraham and Isaac would take preventative measures and say, this is my sister. Uh, you can't go seizing her. You know, they're trying to, they're trying to fend off those kinds of attacks. And, and then as we continue to read here, we are, I think, reminded of other passages in the Bible. Uh, for instance, when Amnon um, um, attacks his sister Tamar. And you remember after he abuses her in the same way that um, Shechem has done to Dinah here, his soul is hates her, and he, and he can't speak peaceably to her, and he sends her away over in 2 Samuel chapter uh, 13. But here uh, we read in verse 3 that the soul of Shechem, his soul, was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. So Shechem responds in the opposite way that uh, Amnon does. Shechem wants to marry uh, Dinah, and then verse 5, and here I think we get a a kind of a, a window into what's going on with Jacob. Jacob heard that he, that's Shechem, had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. Jacob doesn't say anything, Jacob doesn't do anything. And if, if you remember from earlier narratives, as I, as I read this, I kept asking myself, what has happened to Jacob? You, you remember when Jacob goes out from his parents, and he and he first goes over to Padanaram to to get a wife, and he's being so assertive, and he's taking so much initiative, and he meets the men at the well, and he's like, who are you guys? Where are you from? Do you know uh, my, my kinsman Laban? And he's taking the initiative, and then they explain the situation with the the rock over the well, and he's like, Well, I can move that rock, and he moves it out of the way. And, and, and he, he's, he's really a take charge guy. What has happened to him? Where is that take charge guy gone? Well, we don't ever get an explanation, but we do see the ramifications of his failure to take the initiative, his failure to do what really. A father needs to do. So Jacob held his peace until they, come, until they came, and then verse 6, Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. Let me, let me just, in verses 1 through 6, let me just offer you two applications arising from this passage. Number one, we need to be realistic about our circumstances, and we need to, we need to know where the safe places are. I'm talking about real safe places, okay, where we could be attacked in various ways. Uh, I'm, and I'm not talking about verbal attacks necessarily. I'm talking about other kinds of attacks. Although it, it, is, it is the case that we need to be realist, realistic about what going into certain kind of cultural environments could do to our, our way of thinking and our worldview if we, if we don't uh, come out of immersion in a, a wicked and godless and, and uh, worldly place. So n- know where the safe place is and stay in the safe place. And, and the best way to do that is to be locked in to a local church where the Bible is taught, where people believe the Bible, and where people agree that the Bible is actually describing the way the world is. So we need to, we need to recognize this as the safe place, and we need to stay locked in. We need to stay committed, plugged in to one another so that, so that we can help one another through the difficulties and the, the various challenges that we're going to face if we do have to go out among the Canaanites. So that's the first application. Second, second application is pointed straight at the dads in the room. And, and, and I want to urge you, if, if, you're a, if you're a single man, or you're a father with kids, or you're a grandfather, you need to think in terms of leading and providing and protecting all the time. And you need to take a hard look at what Jacob does and does not do here. J- Jacob is totally passive and and as the narrative goes on he's not going to say anything and his sons are just going to run rampant in in entirely inappropriate ways they're they're out of control and it's his responsibility to rein them in and he doesn't do it and and so there's a there's a challenge for us here dads that we need to stake up, step up and take the initiative because if we don't somebody's going to take the initiative and and if the wise don't lead, the unwise will. And that brings us to this conversation that ensues between uh, Hamor, which incidentally, I, I you know I don't know if Moses is um, uh, meaning a sort of uh, slight to this man by by. Uh, referring to him in in this way but the name Hamor uh, is is a word for donkey and um, you know we have uh, we have words in our in our language uh, that would be befitting for this man who has a son who would act this way Uh, this this unit in verses 7 through 13 is bracketed by the reference to the sons of Jacob that you see at the start of verse 7 and then the sons of Jacob in verse 13 so in, in, verse, in verse 7 here, but as, as, I, as I charge in to this next uh, section, let me, let me observe that in this chapter, in all of Genesis chapter 34, there's no reference to God. There's no calling on the name of Yahweh. There, there's, no, there's no prayer to Yahweh. And, and there are no references in this chapter to God's blessing. And, and as we've worked our way through Genesis, we've seen a lot of this, haven't we? We've seen a lot of uh, reference to God's activity. We haven't seen Jacob so much call on the name of the Lord. But this would be an appropriate place, I think. that If, if, if you're Jacob and your daughter is sexually uh, assaulted and, and now the Canaanites come to intermarry, this would be a really good time to call on the name of the Lord. Lord, give me wisdom. Lord, help me to do justice. Lord, help me to lead my family well. Lord, help me to get things in order so that this kind of thing doesn't happen. None of that. Crickets in terms of the spiritual life. The only reference to something religious is circumcision, and it's misused. It's it's used as a ploy in in this next section. So verse 7. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry. Rightly so. Where was this in Jacob? Why isn't Jacob feeling this way? They were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying. Now, I think this would be an appropriate place. If, if Let's say that Hamor is a godly man. Uh, this would be an appropriate place for a godly father to come to the wronged father and to say, my son has done a grievous evil against your daughter and against your family. And we've come to apologize, to repent, to make whatever restitution you deem is right. If you deem that my son should die, he will die. That would be justice, I think. And, 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 just to, to illustrate that, over in Deuteronomy 22, this kind of thing is addressed. Deuteronomy 22, verse 25. If in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed, and the man seizes her and lies with her, exact terminology that we're, ha- we're having here in Genesis, then only the man who lay with her shall die. Okay? So death penalty. So if, if Hamor is a man of justice, he needs to know the consequences, he needs to come and he needs to be prepared to accept what justice requires. There are, there's another possibility. Verse 26, uh, you shall do no, well, we continue reading. You shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offense punishable by death. For this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor because he met her in the open country. And though the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one to rescue her. We continue reading verses 28 and 29. If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed, and seizes her and lies with her, and they are found. Then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all his days. So that's another alternative. If, if Dinah is not betrothed, Shechem could come, um, Hamor could come, and he, he could say, Now he doesn't have the law of Moses, but he could say, Whatever justice requires, that's what we're prepared to do. And, and, and these kinds of terms could be laid out. But Hamor gives no indication that he thinks anything wrong has happened. He says in verse 8, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. He's kind of saying, act toward our women the way that my son has acted toward your woman. We'll We'll just make it a culture. Let's be family. Let's all live this way together. That's what the Canaanite is saying. When he says in verse 9, make marriages with us, you you could render that, become sons-in-law to us. Be sons-in-law to us. In other words, let's be family. Let's be family. Let's let's all live this way. Let's all treat the women the way that Shechem has treated Dinah. We'll all do this together. Because this is normal for us. I've been listening to Carl Truman's book, uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, and he makes the point that civilizations are really defined by what they prohibit. And and the Canaanite civilization doesn't seem to prohibit this kind of activity. In fact, Hamor seems to think, this is normal. This is what we do. Join in with us. He says there in verse 9, make marriages with us, give your daughters to us, and take our daughters for yourselves. Notice the take our daughters for yourselves. I mean, it's almost like if you see one you like, take her, do what Shechem has done to Dinah, and then we'll settle, we'll arrange the details later just like we're doing now. Verse 10, you shall dwell with us. And then listen to what he says here in verse 10. And the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. It's almost as though Hamor thinks he is the one who can come to Jacob, descendant of Abraham and say this will be your land. But look at look at the cost of that. It's it's assimilation into the Canaanite way of life. So Hamor is offering to Jacob what God has promised Jacob if Jacob will take on the Canaanite way of life. Brothers and sisters, the world is offering us the very same thing today. That's exactly what the world is saying to us. The world is saying to us, everything that God has promised to you, you can have it if you'll live. We'll give it to you if you'll live like we live. You'll accept our morals. You'll accept our definition of virtue. You'll stop talking about the Bible's determination of these things, and we'll be the ones who will give you what God has promised you. The the problem with that is if you go that way, you bring God's curse down upon yourself. We know know this from the book of Genesis, because we've already read all the way back in Genesis chapter 9, verse 25, the words, cursed be Canaan. And, And later, uh, a little bit later than that, Genesis 12, 3, we've read, the Lord say to Abraham, Him who dishonors you, I will curse. Well, Shechem has definitely dishonored Dinah. The Canaanites are under the curse of God. If you assimilate with the Canaanites, you take on the Canaanite way of life, you know what else you take on? The curse of the Almighty. That's what you take on. So, so you've you got to be able to recognize... When the world is saying to you, actually, we're going to give you the promises of God and and you can accept our morality, what the world is really saying to you is, come under the curse with us. And and we need to think about worldly enticements in those terms. Verse 11, Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give this reference to favor in your eyes, you know, we think of Noah finding favor in the eyes of the Lord, and, and we think of, of other instances of this phrase, Abraham praying, if I have found favor in your sight, O Lord. We don't want favor in the eye. we don't want the Canaanites to find favor in our eyes. We, we want to think about things the way the, the way the Lord thinks about things. Verse 12, ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give you I will give whatever you say to me, only give me the young woman to be my wife. It almost sounds like he's, he's uh, anticipating Deuteronomy 22, 28, and 29. Hey, we'll make the deal, I'll pay the bride price, I'll take her as my wife. Um, okay, superficially, on the surface, you've met the terms, but we know that down deep inside, you're not sorry for what you've done. You haven't turned, turned away from Canaanite morality and you're not saying anything about Yahweh. You're not saying anything about Yahweh's standard of righteousness. You're not saying anything about wanting to live for him. So this is impossible. This can't be done. And then verse 13, that closing reference to the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. Now, we're in a situation at this point in the passage where what we need is justice and what we get is vengeance and and deceit. So, and, and again, where is Jacob? Why isn't Jacob taking control of the situation at this point? We're offered no explanation for that. Uh, but as as we as we continue here in this passage, let me just point out that um, this unit, beginning in verse fourteen, opens uh, with the condition. Look at look at verse fifteen. Only on this condition will we agree with you, and it's going to close with reference to the same. Look down at verses t- verse twenty two. Only on this condition um, will the men agree. And then it goes on to talk about how they're going to need to be circumcised. So this only on condition business opens and closes this this unit of the text, which runs through verse 24. So verse 14, the sons of Jacob reply, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised. For that would be a disgrace to us, which I think there's, there's truth there, but it's not the most essential truth from the sons of Jacob. It is true that they are not—they are not to intermarry with the Canaanites, and and we've we've seen already um, uh, Abraham's concern that Isaac not intermarry with the Canaanites, and so he sends his servant back in Genesis 24 over to the family, uh, the branch of the family that's back in Paddan Aram to get uh, Rebecca for Isaac to marry, and then Isaac and Rebecca—they don't want. Jacob to do like Esau and intermarry with the Canaanites and so they send Jacob back over to that branch of the family where he marries uh, Rachel and Leah so we've we've seen this concern not to intermarry with the Canaanites before it's going to be articulated definitively in Deuteronomy 7 verse 3 where Moses just outright says you shall not intermarry with them so um They're right that they can't intermarry. They don't articulate the most essential reason why they are not to intermarry with the Canaanites. And that's because the Canaanites don't worship Yahweh. It's it's not an ethnic thing. It's not a race thing. It's nothing like that. It's about devotion to Yahweh. So if a Canaanite, if let's say Shechem, if Shechem were to come and say, I've heard the stories about your God. I know that he is the, the, the only creator I know that if I am to have salvation, it will only be by Yahweh. And and I know that Yahweh has revealed himself to Abraham and made promises to Abraham. And I want to be part of that. I think the right thing for them to to, to do would be to say, come on in. Hallelujah. Praise Yahweh. You're in. But that's not how they're coming. That's not how they're coming. And I think it's slightly problematic that the sons of Jacob are not identifying devotion to Yahweh as the reason the Canaanites cannot be incorporated into the people of Israel. Because apart from devotion to Yahweh, if they become one people, they're just going to become Canaanites. So they say in verse 15, only on this condition will we agree with you, that you become as we are, by every male among you, being circumcised. It's interesting that the Canaanites, what they want is to make Israel into Canaan. And the Israelites, on the surface, want to make the Canaanites into Israel. But neither one of them are getting at the heart of the issue, which is, again, devotion to Yahweh. They say in verse 16, then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves. And we will dwell with you and become one people. This is just a flat-out lie. They have no intention to do this. Right, and, they're, and they're right to have no intention to do this. They should not assimilate with these people. But they also should be seeking justice, not this excessive vengeance which they're after. Verse 17, if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. Earlier we read that he was the prince of the land. Verse twenty. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, "These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them." And then, as as uh, they continue to speak, we're going to see what they really think of this arrangement. What they really think starts to come out here in verse twenty one, where they say, "Let us take their daughters as wives, and let us give them our daughters." Verse twenty-two. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people, when every male among among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. But here's what they think they're going to get. Verse twenty-three. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? In other words, we're going to. This is a this is a takeover. We're going to be the ones in possession of all the resources. That's what's going to happen. And we're going to do this external surface level things, get circumcised, and then they're going to accept our morality. And we're going to dictate the terms of life, and we're going to have all their stuff. That's what they think. So there's, again, there's no repentance. There's no concern for Yahweh. There's no concern for Yahweh's righteousness. Verse 24, And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. So that brings that section to a close, where they they make this agreement. Um, And that brings us to what Simeon and Levi now do. We have another reference to the sons of Jacob here in verse 25. And I think that this one is matched by their reference to their sister at the end in verse 31, the daughter of of Jacob. So verse 25 on the third day when they were sore two of the sons of Jacob Simeon and Levi Dinah's brothers took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. And this is not biblical justice. Right? We just read in Deuteronomy that there according to Moses There are two legal possibilities here to do justice in this kind of case. The first possibility is the perpetrator of the crime, the individual, not the whole tribe, right? Not not every male that lives in his city. The individual who committed the crime can be put to death. That's the first possibility. The other possibility is the individual who committed the crime makes restitution, takes on the wife, And may never divorce her. That's biblical justice. It is not biblical justice. To commit a war crime. To do an atrocity. Which is what Simeon and Levi do. There is no justification for this. And and again I think we can go back to Jacob. Where was Jacob? Why didn't Jacob say to his sons. What are you thinking? You are not going to do this. No this is not how we will conduct ourselves. You may not go slaughter all the males of that town. You may not do that. And if they try to oppose him, he needs to to stand in the way to the fullest extent of his life to keep them from doing this. They need to seek real justice, not excessive vengeance. Verse 26, they killed Hamor. And his son Shechem with the sword. It's not the way you... You don't kill a father because of the son's sins. I mean, Hamor, okay, he was a bad father. But he doesn't die because of what his son Shechem... But he does here. And they took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field... All their wealth, all their little ones, and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. So they're savages is what they are. The, the, the sons of Jacob, the people of Israel. You notice it says, it says they killed Hamor. That's probably Simeon and Levi. But then in verse 27, the sons of Jacob, that's probably all the brothers. All the brothers, so Simeon and Levi, they kill everybody. And then all the brothers come through and plunder all the resources and take everybody captive. The people of Israel are like pirates, is what they are. Isn't that encouraging? You know, ironically, I think it is. Because at this point, I want to ask, where's the gospel in this passage? Where's the gospel in this? Well, the gospel, I think, is actually coming in the next chapter. Look, drop your eyes down to chapter 35. Chapter 35, verse 1. In spite of the fact that Jacob has been a terrible father. In spite of the fact that Jacob has been a terrible son. In spite of the fact that Jacob hasn't led, hasn't taken the initiative, look what happens. God said to Jacob. And then, if you drop down to verse 9, God appeared to Jacob again. And then if you were to read verses 9 through 15, what you would find is God articulating the blessing of Abraham... To Jacob. Here's why I think that's beautiful. The book of Genesis is teaching Jacob didn't earn this. Jacob didn't deserve this. Jacob didn't earn a righteous status before God by his works. The Bible doesn't teach that ever in any part. The Bible teaches that sinners get saved, which is good news for all of us. The Bible teaches that God mercifully, not because they deserve it, God mercifully comes to people like Jacob who have made a mess of their whole lives. Jacob blew up his family. Jacob's ruined his children's lives by not tra- training them in the gospel. And, and, and now he's, he's having the fallout all around him. His, his wives are bickering among themselves. His sons are committing atrocities. In the next chapter, one of his sons is going to commit incest with one of Jacob's women. It's awful. And that's the kind of person that God saves. Not because they deserve it. Not because they earned it. Not because they somehow started taking steps in the right direction. But because God is a God whose merciful, steadfast, loving kindness overcomes the deepest depths of our sinfulness. That's where the gossip gospel is in this passage. The gospel in this passage is that people who don't deserve to be saved actually get saved by the living God. So, you know, nobody in this passage looks good. Dinah doesn't look good. She should have stayed in a safe place. Jacob doesn't look good. Simeon and Levi don't look good. Obviously, Shechem and Hamor don't look good, and the rest of the brothers, they don't none of, none of them look good. The only one that looks good in this passage is God whose standards are against all of this kind of behavior and whose love overcomes even this kind of behavior. Uh, Jacob's response to this, he's still not seeking justice. Jacob's concern is for himself. Uh, You know, uh, you would think after his sons have slaughtered all the men of the city and plundered them and carried off their their, their families captive. You would think that Jacob would be appalled at the injustice, the wickedness of what his sons have done, and he would address that. Look at what he says. Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. Jacob, what about these people that they murdered? He's just totally self-concerned here. And he explains, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, my numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. And we'll see in the next chapter in verse 5, uh, chapter 35, verse 5, as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So the Lord protects him in 35, 5 from exactly what he fears, but that, uh, that it's, it's, his response is not encouraging. Verse 31, they said, this is chapter 34, verse 31. Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? So, you know, he, he uses her for what he wants, and then he offers to pay. Is this the way it should be? And, and obviously, uh, no. The answer to that is no, he shouldn't do that. But you shouldn't slaughter the whole city in response. Interestingly, we have here a kind of I- ironic and unexpected preview given to us by Moses In the grace of God, okay? So in what I'm about to say, I am not saying that Simeon and Levi did something good, and I'm not trying to justify what Simeon and Levi did. But it is fascinating that back in in chapter 31, when Jacob fled from Laban, there were all these points of contact with with the exodus from Egypt. And then in um, chapter 32, you know, he he wrestles with God, um, and, and as he returns from exile... Chapter 33, he kind of has a reconciliation with Esau. And then in chapter 34, it's as though they put the Canaanites under the ban. It's almost like they conquer the land. So there's a a sequence of events here that kind of matches the exodus from Egypt and then the the journey up to the land, sojourn through the wilderness to return to the land, and then the conquest of Canaan. And then what... um, What Simeon and Levi do here is clearly condemned by Jacob over in Genesis 49, uh, verses um, uh, 5 and 6, which we'll get to eventually, 5 through 7. So Jacob clearly condemns what they do, but even there, it's as though God turns the evil into good. Because as we read earlier, God is going to take the tribe of the Levites for himself. And the tribe of the Levites... Are going to to become those who guard the sanctuary, and who guard the holiness of God as they seek purity among the people of Israel, which is what they do at Exodus thirty two, uh, which was read earlier in the service, and it's also what Phineas does, which is what we we used as our call to worship this morning. Uh, Phineas, who was of the of the tribe of Levi, a priest of the line of Aaron, so it's as though there's an anticipation of this as you uh, of of. Uh, the Levitical concern for purity and the, and the guarding of the holiness of God in what Levi and Simeon do here. And, and I think that ultimately that zeal for, for justice, even vengeance, not, not excessive but perfect justice, I think ultimately that's going to be realized when Christ comes on the white horse, when he comes as the king who will do justice the brother who will protect his sister, whose righteousness no one can question or challenge because he is also the one who established the just God's ability to show mercy by offering himself in the place of sinners, bearing, as we sang earlier, the awful load as the sacrifice appointed. He paid our penalty in his own blood, He made good the promises of God. He brought an end to the enmity. He reconciled man to God and nation to nation. And he is coming on a white horse. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would teach us righteousness from this passage. Teach us what justice looks like. And Lord, I pray that you would make us resolved to... To speak when we need to speak, to lead when we need to lead, not to sit passively by and let let the unruly, the untrained, the undisciplined, the wicked do more evil. And Lord, I pray that you would cause us to hope in the coming of Jesus, the one who will make all things right. Lord, we love you. We praise you for your word. We pray that you would instruct our hearts by it and that you would keep us to the end. Lord, we pray that you would enable us to finish the race, keep us from collapsing, keep an injury from knocking us out. Enable us to cross the finish line in faith for the glory of your great name.